want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. yes! 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, I would ask how it's going, but I think I know because we got some big freaking news today as we record uh, yesterday as people are listening to this. Holy crap. We did. Uh, you know, it's funny, only about 72 hours ago, and I admit, admittedly I don't remember whether it was before or after Frost and Lynch had those synchronized tweets that everyone saw that were cryptic, but optimistic i was just telling someone with the way that the tv landscape is going i would be more surprised if we never got more twin peaks than if we did it just it was beginning to feel to me like an inevitability so i know you weren't there but can i just say that i called it <laughs> well that one of the first things i immediately went to of course uh, i was very excited about, about the announcement and I gotta say, David Lynch's that gum you like is coming back in his style. Like that's the perfect way to tease about that. I thought that was, you know, it was well done, Lynch. Of course, the first thing I thought of was our fabulous experience watching uh, Louis. For those who don't know, uh, Simon is in Canada. I am in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. We rarely actually get to spend time in person, and so we were actually watching TV in person uh, when David Lynch came on screen. And Louie, and it was, we both had this like, holy crap, I know that voice moment. And it was amazing. It was so much fun. One of my highlights of watching that show. And so the first thing I thought of was that amazing pit in your stomach feeling of, is David Lynch about to come on my TV? <laughs> show up and say <laughs> things and be awesome. Uh, so yeah, I, it was very exciting news for me. 2016, very exciting. Yes, we will probably be some of the many, many white people talking about Twin Peaks uh, in specialized podcasts uh, in 2016. So do look forward to that. Uh, Lynch, I mean, honestly, Lynch directing nine hours of anything to me is just like mind-bogglingly awesome. I, in a way, I almost don't even care that it's Twin Peaks. Although I am hoping, just for all the Inland Empire haters out there, and apparently there's loads of you, I'm hoping that the show is that level of fucked up and weird <laughs> just to show you that you're wrong anyway that's enough out of me for now we have to, we've got we've got so much show to get to but i did hear that i have to pity you this week yeah i am to be pitied uh there's been just you, you think we've we've had as much fun as we're gonna have with the new york times television criticism and then I don't actually even know the name of the critic because it was, he, I think it's a he was so roundly mocked when this came out and then immediately dismissed as, of course, a fucking course. <laughs> uh, so I was on the fence about watching more Grace Point. I had seen the pilot and I was like, should I, they, you know, the, the screener site, they, they had the first seven episodes up because episode seven is where they diverge from Broadchurch. It's like, okay, either I'm watching no more or I'm watching six more hours of this show. I'm kind of torn about it. There's been some positive buzz. There's been, you know, I, I'm kind of 
not sure which way to go. And then I saw that uh, that that line from the New York Times TV critic who felt that anyone who has enough time or anyone who who watches both versions just to see what the differences are and compare acting performances deserves to be pitied or is to be pitied, I think, is what what he said. I was just like, well, then. My adult mature response is, fuck you. I guess I should be pitied then. I'm watching all of it while I do some paperwork. <laughs> Woo, yeah. Oh, the NYT TV section. Oh, God. I think, though, I think it really says much more about me than about them, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it, it can say something about everyone. But uh, we've got a long shelf this week. Yep. We were talking with Emma Fraser of TV at My Wardrobe about uh, Alias. That's coming at the end of the podcast, which was it was so much fun for me. Uh, I really have a, a, an affinity for that show. And it was particularly fun for me because uh, it is one of those DVD shelves where not everybody's on the same page. And that's as much as I'll say. Um, but it was certainly uh, a lot of fun. That's coming at the end of the show. We're going to try to keep things short because we are planning a deep dive into a show this week, which is probably not the one everyone's expecting given uh, uh Grace Point premiered. We've seen the pilot of The Affair. Uh, Homeland had a two-hour premiere. And Good Wife had a really fun episode. And Stalker premiered. But none of those are the episode we're doing a deep dive in. Which is the episode we're doing a deep dive in? Apparently it's Doctor Who. And I'm very surprised that I haven't seen... I don't think I've seen a single think piece about this episode. Which shows you just how much everybody cares about Doctor Who right now. Everybody couldn't get over themselves to write about Listen, but nobody cared that Doctor Who did an abortion episode. Uh, I, th I find this very interesting. Anyways, we're going to dive into that later in the show. Because of all this... Uh, you know, these interesting shows that we have a lot to talk about. We're going to mostly skip listener feedback this week. I did just want to quickly mention we heard from Sean and Augustine at the website uh, with lovely comments. You guys can check them out. They will talk about Legend of Korra. I've seen the season four premiere, but I want to not talk about it until I get more context for everything. I don't I don't want to be hasty on that. So uh, I'll, I'll, I will talk about Korra, I think, in the next couple of weeks. But for right now, I'm going to withhold comment um but they also had answers to the question of the week um sean says this isn't quite what simon is asking but it surprises me how overlooked oz is when it comes to the upper upper echelon of television dramas uh plenty of people remember it but it's never part of the conversations that the sopranos the wire and deadwood are in and i would honestly put it extremely close to that group that's a that's a series of shame for me i haven't seen any oz uh, neither have I. I've always been under the impression that it was one of HBO's sort of formative dramas of its new golden age. Didn't it premiere before The Sopranos? I want to say it did, yeah. Uh, and I feel like, you know, it was sort of part of their growing pain and is generally perceived as being good, but not necessarily quite on that level with some of the other shows. But hey, at some point, someone will shelf it and we will watch it and then we will talk about it. That's what I just kind of keep waiting on for somebody to want to DVD shelf it. And it's not come up once from, for anyone. So that kind of maybe that you know, kind of proves Sean's point. And Augustine says, for the question of the week, I actually have a top five of underrated HBO shows. One, Spawn, the animated series. Two, Testament, the Bible and animation. That I'm intrigued by that being an HBO show. Uh, three, the Little Lulu show. Four, Carnival. At least I'm guessing uh, Carnival. And five, Hung. Shame H uh, HBO doesn't dabble in animation anymore. They had some pretty good stuff that I doubt people even remember. Um, yeah, I had not heard of Spawn, the animated series, Testament, the Bible, <laughs> or uh, Little Lulu. Uh, Carnival, though, and Hung are both series I've not seen a moment of. How about you? I've seen most of Hung. It's all right. I wouldn't put it as like a great underrated show. I've always meant to see Carnival and never have. That's another I just keep waiting for the DVD shelf for. 
Yep. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll mention here at the top is that I was a guest on the Eat the Rootcast this this past week. So if people out there somehow have not heard enough of me talking about Hannibal and specifically the season two premiere of Hannibal, you can find another hour or two over at Eat the Rootcast. Uh, it was so much fun talking with with those guys. Of course, Ophelia was on the podcast uh, from Eat the Rootcast not just a few weeks ago. And so it's great to return the favor and guest over there. And I should plug the fact that if you saw Gone Girl this weekend, then you should listen to the Sound on Sight podcast that's going to be going up either. If it's not up by the time this podcast is up, it will be in the next 48 hours. Uh, that was myself, Kate Renabom, and Justine Smith gabbing about that movie for 90 solid minutes, uh, which for the sound, which for Sound on Sight is a really long time. Uh, I know it's not so long for a Hannibal <laughs> podcast, but we like to we like to keep things short when we can. Uh, so that was just epic and awesome, and we went super deep on it, and I was very happy with it, so I can't wait for people to hear that. Well, with all of that out of the way, we're going to take a break now and come back with our week in comedy. Oh, no! We're a bunch of secretaries from New York held hostage in Nakatomi Tower! Shush! I'm Carl, the one with beautiful hair! I'm Hans Gruber. Consider yourself groomed. Yes, we killed can't let a bunch of terrorists ruin her dream. I hope the police come soon. I'll blast her John Blakesley! This week in comedy, we're going to have a little catch-up talk here at the top, and then I'm going to talk Gravity Falls, Little Gift Shop of Horrors. We'll have a trio of pilots that I'll talk about Bad Judge, A to Z, and then we both saw the Mulaney pilot, and then we'll spend a little bit more time with Key and Peele. I want to say that that one's called Little Homie, and then the Bob's Burgers premiere, Work Hard or Die Trying, Girl. Um, so first, a little catch-up talk. Uh, I I finally, finally finished Orange is the New Black Season 2. Spoiler alert, guys. It's really good. Like everybody's been saying, um, I'm hoping we'll get a chance to dive in with that a bit uh, more at some point here. Certainly, I'm sure we will talk about it as we get towards the end of the year. Uh, that last moment, we've talked about this off air a little bit. You you weren't as, as hot with it. I loved it. <laughs> um, but I, while I didn't have that same urgency of I need to watch the next episode of season two the way I did with season one, which is evident by the fact that I only finished it now. Um, I still really ended up having a, a lot of fun with Orange is the New Black season two. Any thoughts on it? Uh, overall thought, I'm sure we'll have occasion to talk about it at some point, but because because we're don't we don't have that kind of time this week, I will say that I think that the the middle portion, or the, the, maybe even the whole first three quarters of that season, I think was the best run of the show so far. And then the, I guess the season's sort of final act, if you want to put it that way, kind of fell flat for me. Um, not necessarily in, in all the details, but I think as a whole, I just, it just didn't come together the way that I was hoping it would. That being said, I think it was probably overall on par with season one, which is to say it was very good. Yeah. When I started the season, I wasn't sure uh, where if it'd be crack my top 10, but by the end of the season, I really liked the last act of the season. So by the end of the season, I would be very surprised if it's not high on my top 10 of the year, but uh, uh, we should move on. So I'll just, again, mention that I've seen all now of season one of Transparent, uh, which was out, uh, released, I want to say two weeks ago now. Uh, look at us, two full weeks to watch a whole season of, you know, released all at once streaming shows. This is crazy for me. I know. We're going to get a chance to talk about this uh, much more in a couple weeks, but um, I just want to say, uh, echo what everybody else has been saying out there. It's very, very good. And um, I was not a fan, really, of the pilot of 
anybody except for the you know, the Mora character. I really didn't care about you know any of the kids, and I was very glad to see that turn around pretty quickly on the show. So I people should definitely you know what everybody else is saying. You should check out Transparent. I think it's excellent and very compelling television with very strong performances. Yes, we we have a segment coming up in two weeks that we're very excited for. Uh, in which we will talk about Transparent and some other things. It's going to be good. I will just say I've seen eight of the ten episodes. I still have to watch the last two, but uh, so many things I love about that show and very, very few things that I don't. And uh, yes, everyone is right. It's one of the few times in the TV sphere lately where everyone is in agreement and no one has any bitching to do. <laughs> and uh, we're going to get to one of those where everybody's wrong a little later in the podcast. I love those. Yeah, those are so much fun. Uh, now let's move on quickly to this specifically this week in TV. And that's going to start with Gravity Falls, Little Gift Shop of Horrors. I had so much fun with this episode. I'm just, I was so glad that I caught up with it because I knew you weren't going to have a chance to see it, Simon. So I was like, should I make time for this if we can't really talk about it? And I'm very glad I did. I thought it was hilarious. It was an anthology of interest or, or Treehouse of Horror kind of style episode with three uh, smaller segments, each centered around an object at the Mystery Shack. And it's narrated by Grunkle Stan, so it's kind of assumed that he's just making stuff up. But it was delightful, and it was the best Halloween-themed uh, episode, certainly in that style, I've seen in a long time. And people should absolutely seek it out. It was a blast. So uh, I thought it was very funny and had some really fun voice cameos, and I hope we'll get a chance to talk about it uh, when you catch up with the show. Yes. I've I've really enjoyed what I've seen of Gravity Falls, and I just, it just hasn't been on my radar lately, but it will be again soon-ish. There's claymation. There's claymation and a Harryhausen stand-in, and it's delightful. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, our trio of pilots, uh, I've already talked about A to Z and Bad Judge. Um, I don't have anything new to say about A to Z. With Bad Judge, what I find very interesting, and I'm sure other critics have talked about this, is that the two different versions of the pilot they made are very different. Like, they almost completely rewrote the lead character, her personality, um, but they didn't do a full reshoot which I find very odd. <laughs> so it's sort of weird to see the, the actual pilot of the show because if you've seen the original version, you can see where they spliced in scenes where the character is a complete mess and doesn't care about uh, very very many people and uh, is yeah is in, a, in an all-lady rock band called uh, Lady Cock. Um, and then there's the new version. Oh, and has, is saddled with a kid she doesn't care about that she has to take care of. And then the new version... She is very, she is always going out of her way to help this kid. She knows exactly who he is, uh, rather than um, being completely blindsided by him. Um, she no longer has a best friend in a band, and they recast her love interest out to, and re completely re rewrote that character. It's, just, it's very odd. Neither one of those pilots is particularly good. Um, they have a, a different showrunner, who's Betsy Thomas, who's doing it now. So I have no idea what the show's going to look like in five weeks when she, when her episodes start airing but i just think it's very interesting kate walsh is so likable i will probably check out to see what the third version of the show is but i can't <laughs> remember the last time i saw this significant a change in a pilot where they didn't just reshoot it entirely so bad judge is a very curious beast right now yeah there's a bit of that going around um well let's let's talk a little bit about the Mulaney pilot i've seen actually at least four maybe five episodes of Mulaney, and the reason i kept watching is that the pilot is not good. It's not very good. But Mulaney, the stand-up bits that he does, I think are funny. I think he's funny. And 
I, everybody involved should be funnier and smarter than this. So I kept waiting. I was like, I, I was intrigued to see more and try to f see if it was going to find itself or something was going to click where I would all of a sudden get it. And I don't after having seen four or five episodes. Uh, and I don't like, I feel like this is, there's a good show in there, but it's not going to happen. And I feel like these people can make a good show, but somehow they just really miss the mark here. I remember listening to Stephen Falk of uh, showrunner of You're the Worst, possibly the best new comedy of the year, uh, talking about why it's so hard to make good comedies in the current network environment or really any environment, but specifically the network environment. And he was talking about how, you know, a, a, a talent will have an idea and, you know, they'll, they may not, you know, the network may want to work with the talent or they may want an idea but they may not be able to match the talent with the idea or the idea they may want to go with may not actually support a show it might just be good for one episode or three episodes or six episodes but not you know seven sets of 22 episodes or whatever just no one's trying no one's trying hard enough to match the right people with the right work they're just trying to fit a certain demographic even considering that i'm not quite sure how many happened i mean i guess it was Lauren Michaels thinking, come hell or high water, Mulaney, you will have a show. And I know that they've tried for a couple of years to get this off the ground. Uh, do you know the history of that at all? This was actually a pilot for NBC last year. And uh, it had the, it was apparently very similar, except for the whole main premise of it being that Mulaney, uh, the character he's playing is uh, an alcoholic and he realizes this and decides to put his life back together. He's a complete mess. Uh, and I think it's something like he wakes up in the morning after a bunch of like a bunch of drinking and he actually has more money in his wallet than when he blacked out. And this is so odd or like, so how could this possibly like what happened that I don't know what happened um, that he, that this prompts him to try to get his life together and become a better person. Uh, which I don't know how they just cut that out of this, <laughs> of this pilot. Uh, network retooling. I, yeah. I guess, first of all, I watched this pilot maybe four days ago. So much of it has already gone from my mind because so much of it is just let's throw shit at the wall. And I couldn't tell you if any of it stuck. Apparently very little of it did. I didn't find the stand-up funny, although it was the only portion of it that seemed remotely natural you you know you've got a bunch of people in there who are funny and can act and they're doing neither of those things uh it's very here. stagey it's it, it it's very poorly directed it well i mean that's the thing it's so stagey and so stilted i mean even like elliot gould's character which is so it's a cardboard cutout it's not i can't even call him a character that and i feel like elliot it's gotta be Gould. exactly that's why i feel like it has to be intentional and that's why i'm like I feel like there's something I'm not getting that I don't know if it's well executed and I'm just not getting it or if they're trying to do something and just completely failed in the execution. That's why no one is getting it. it it's like I've never seen David Lynch's on the air. It's another one that I'm hoping somebody shel shelves at some point. But it's it's often been described as a comedy made by people who don't understand comedy. And that's what this felt like to me, which is weird because everyone it involved is should theoretically understand comedy. Maybe their conceptions are just so different that you're ending up with this crazy, uh, possibly psychotic mishmash. Yeah, I just, it's, 
I, that, that's why I ended up watching all the episodes they had available. <laughs> because it was so compellingly terrible. Well, it's because it's not just, it's that it's a very interesting failure to me. Because mm -hmm. I just, because again, these are all a bunch of smart people. These are funny people that we're watching not be funny. And just very, like, very determinedly not be funny. And uh, I'm fascinated as to why and how. And they're not, and it's not being not funny in the same straightforwardly formulaic way as like other failures of funny people not being funny. Like all those times the the Always Sunny guys produce a show, mm -hmm. and it just comes out like more formulaic garbage. Yeah, it's not that because clearly this is not. I don't feel like this is a network note issue. This is just this is it feels like this is the show they wanted to make. But why? <laughs> but why? Anyway, I don't know if there's a whole lot else to say about it. It's just, and like nobody watched it, so it's it's destined for the for the trash can unless Lauren Michaels manages to pull it up all night and shove it down people's throats well, for long enough. But they already have thirteen. They they have a commitment to thirteen episodes. So oh fuck! <laughs> thirteen episodes are being made. They might not all air, but yeah, we've already talked four times longer about this than we originally intended. We had a plan. It's already ruined. The plan is gone. Uh, but. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with it, but I would be surprised if it goes away. I mean, just because they have to pay for it, I would be surprised if it goes completely away uh, and Lauren immediately. Michaels. And Lauren Michaels. But, um, yeah, I've heard people compare it to Louis C.K.'s show before Louis, which was... Lucky Louis? Oh, please, don't don't make that comparison. Like, Lucky just... Louis is 50 times better than this, and it's still not great. Well, just this notion that it's aware that it's a sitcom. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We should let's let's just stop this and move on because yes. we got to talk about Key and Peel and Little Homie. You're not liking the season as much as I am. I really have <laughs> enjoyed these episodes, but Club Guy might not have worked. There might have been you know some of the other things in this episode that weren't quite as successful. But Little Homie was fantastic. Little Homie is an amazing sketch, only slightly dulled by the fact that it is kind of a, a slight ripoff of Franklin from Arrested Development, although they take it in a very different direction. I mean, that's a fantastic sketch. Uh, that is so requires so much skill of execution in every sense um, that it makes the episode worth watching, but none of the others landed for me. And that's not a great batting average for Key and Peele. They can do better. Come on, guys. See, I like the Nazis uh, with Ty Burrell. I thought that was, I thought, oh, I thought that was so funny. Terrible. <laughs> so one funny. joke. Yeah. One, one joke for seven or eight minutes or whatever it was or whatever it felt like not good guys <laughs> the steam uh the steampunk thing also worked for me mostly just because i enjoy steampunk stuff um so i thought that was a nice poke uh, i thought i thought that worked for me but i can see how it didn't for you that one i don't get how you don't like the nazi sketch but whatever that's fine we could agree the club guy was terrible though really bad really bad it was only yeah, I'm not going to get into that. It was it was not good. It was not funny. And it wasn't offensive. It just wasn't funny. And, and again, that's another one that just kept going. Uh, and going. And yeah. But um, but Little Homie will... Do you want Little Homie to recur? No. I think I w it was it was fine. I, unless they can find ways to escalate it. But I mean... How do you I'm glad, I, I'm glad that they're... I'm glad that they're pursuing all new stuff. And especially with the lo longer season order, they've, they've got to diversify as much as they can. But yeah, just... If they could do that with more good ones, that would be good. <laughs> well, uh, I think we're going to agree a little bit more about this next one, and that's Bob's Burgers, which had its premiere, Work Hard or Die Trying Girl. And uh, there was a lot of buzz about it being another terrific uh, Bob's Burgers premiere. And granted, I am not familiar with Working Girl. I've not seen Working Girl. However, 
I have Die Hard memorized just about. I started. I first saw it when I was like eight because my parents are awesome, and <laughs> uh, I love that. I have a very strong place in my heart for Die Hard, and this episode still I didn't think was very funny. I mean, I know that your one of your complaints about this episode, not to spoil it, is the flashback structure or the bookend structure. To me, the main issue was that too much of the episode was taken up with the competing and then combined musicals, which just felt like one with like a very specific set of jokes hammered on for too long, which if you weren't not only familiar, but like deeply enmeshed with the reference, the episode didn't work for you. And I feel like most TV critics are, are especially the established ones are of a certain age where it really resonated with them. I think everyone else was just sitting back wondering what the big deal was with that episode. Yeah, I mean, I love musicals and I love Die Hard. And I, maybe if I saw it, I'd love Working Girl. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> yeah, like you said, the flashback structure stood out to me because every time the show has done that, I maybe once has it worked for me. It just, for me, it robs all the urgency and it, it just sticks in these extra scenes that slow down the pacing and really take away from the, the uh, energy of the action. And, mm -hmm. you know, I also don't disagree. I mean, the songs were not the issue for me because, of course, like I said, I love musicals. But the less than stellar singing at a certain point, I can only handle a certain percentage of uh, terrible singing. In an episode, if you're going to have a musical be the whole episode, I need at least like basic kid carry a tune, not out of tune all the time before it starts to grate. No, I agree. Uh, and I'm not as musically inclined in, a, in the classical sense as you are. I mean, in terms of the flashback thing, the only bit of that that I liked and I always like when when they do that is I like the, the way that they toy with alternate perspectives. They get some some amusing little gags out of that. But yeah, they... Boss Burgers is not a show that needs to get fancy to be funny. No. And I just, if it, there were more jokes, if I were, not, I mean, but, and if I were laughing more, you know. Yes. It would have been just fine, but I a wasn't. <laughs> apparently this is the only Bobs we get this month, month, which is weird. Football. Football. But, Ruining everything, pushing back the good wife. And I, and I like football. Uh, and yet, uh, well, what wins your week in comedy? I will give it to Lil Homie and then pretend the rest of the episode didn't happen. And I'm going to give it to Gravity Falls. We're keeping Transparent and Orange is the new black out of that conversation. So I definitely would give it to Gravity Falls and you should check it out because it's a lot of fun. Anybody listening should should try to hunt that down on Disney XD or Disney Original Flavor or wherever it's airing. It airs a different place each week. It's really annoying, uh, but it's worth it's worth the effort for this episode. Now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our week in drama.
this week in drama, we're going to talk briefly about the affair pilot, preview that, and then uh, I'll talk a little bit about Grace Point before we both talk about the Homeland premiere, uh, the Stalker pilot, uh, the, <laughs> the Nick, Boardwalk Empire, The Good Wife, and then we'll do a deep dive with Doctor Who. First up, the affair is is, be- is premiering next week on Showtime. Uh, Showtime put up the pilot. They made the pilot available for people to check out. And uh, so we're not going to get into spoilers, obviously, because many of you will not have seen it yet. But certainly it's been getting a lot of buzz from critics um, before, you know, it's been one of the most praised new shows of the year, certainly of the fall. And uh, I think it's got an excellent cast and has some interesting things that it's doing. I would recommend everybody check it out. Those looking for another you know, white person drama, basically. <laughs> Check it out. Uh, what do you What do you think about the affair? I am concerned for its long term prospects, but uh, there are a lot of reasons provided here to be optimistic. The writing is really sharp. The acting is great. Uh, it's so nice to see Maura Tierney get to be in something good. <sighs> I've How missed long Maura Tierney. Been? Well, she's been on other stuff, but the last one show I remember her um, being one of the leads on was, of course, The Whole Truth, which lasted not even like a full season. That was her legal uh, procedural that she had with Rob Morrow, I want to say, the guy from Northern Exposure. And I really right. liked her in that. But again, it's it, that was there's, she's done a few things since then, uh, recurring roles, but she's wonderful. She's fantastic to have on my TV every week. I'm very excited. I'm hoping she gets more to do. In the next I'm episodes. assuming that's coming. Yeah, I mean, you don't. Why do you cast more tyranny and then not use her? Right. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to talk about because in detail at all because it's one of those shows that you should go in knowing as little as possible. At least I did, and I found myself uh, enjoying it more for that reason. But it's it's always nice to have a new show meant for adults and not just in the graphic content sort of way. Well, and it's nice to have a show that is exploring issues not and, and when i say issues i don't mean political issues but it has a point of view it, it is exploring um perception uh it's ex- exploring memory um there's there's a lot going on here that we can't really talk about until y'all have seen mm-hmm. the pilot but and our favorite gender politics yeah Ooh. lots of gender politics in there too so in a fall where most of the new shows have you know the, the most that they're trying for is to entertain and some of them are successful. Some, many of them are not. Uh, it's it's very nice to see a show that actually is interested in these other larger issues, as well as trying to tell a compelling story. Um, so we'll see. We'll talk about it more next week. Basically, it doesn't doesn't it remind you of when Homeland premiered? Well, speaking of, uh, that's where <laughs> uh, that's where we're going next with the, both of us talking. But before before we do that, first of all, I have to mention Sasha. Very excited to to see one of the bunheads uh, on the affair. Uh, I'm hoping she'll get more to do. Basically reprising her role. Let's be honest. Well, I'm, let's let's hope they give her more. Uh, she's I I couldn't even place her in this first episode because it gave her so little to do besides just you know kind of be difficult. <laughs> That's you know. But uh, again, I'm hoping that she gets more to do. We'll see. Um, before we move on to Homeland, though, I'm going to mention Grace Point basically because I watched seven episodes of it. The first, the pilot. You didn't even watch the pilot. I haven't seen anybody else have my reaction, which was that I literally started laughing out loud because it was so blatantly the American remake of a small British drama where everyone is, you know, is 
slightly more is more conventionally attractive than their counterparts and old weathered guy is you know now you can't really old and weathered you can't understand his voice like everybody every character is just this level heightened that really took me out of it and it just it felt like self-parody at a certain point um that that element to it really for me at least uh faded away somewhat in the next uh, watching the next episodes the first six i know some people are curious about this the first six episodes are basically straight remake of uh great of, of broadchurch so if you've seen broadchurch and you want to just jump in at episode seven i honestly think you probably could you might want to watch six to like kind of get refreshed on the world but things start changing in episode seven. Um, and you know, uh, Mo Ryan and, and Ryan McGee, our buddies over at Talking TV with Ryan and Ryan, mentioned this. And I think in the review, and I think it's an excellent point, that there was an awareness to the actors that added a, a nice little element to the original that this one lacks. So you cast David Bradley, who's just coming off of Game of Thrones and being Walder Frey in that role. And that adds an element to the character. You cast uh, Arthur Darville, who's just coming off of being, you know, a Rory on Doctor Who <laughs> as the priest. And that adds just an inherent, we just like him and trust him more because we're used to seeing him as this really likable, trusty, uh, trustable character. Um, so there's some of that that, you know, I think is an excellent point. There's certainly something lacking for me in this, not to mention the just not good accent from David Tennant. Not his fault. They shouldn't have had him cast him or they shouldn't have had him be American, whatever. Um, but I thought it was pleasant enough. I thought it was fine. I didn't stop watching them. Um, so that's about as faint of praise as I can give. But honestly, I was considering not after the first episode. If I had started laughing out loud with the second episode, I would have stopped. So I think it's harmless. And for those who haven't seen the original, um, I, they will probably find things they find compelling. But um, certainly because it's not like it's easy to watch Broadchurch, you know, why not? Why not watch Grace Point other than there are better things to watch on Thursday? Um, so that that's that's where I'm at with it. Certainly, it it gets it. I think it's better after the first episode. Sort of like it's not like the Office U.S. version where the first two episodes are just painful because it's trying to be the British version and they don't realize that American comedy sensibilities might be different um, than you know the very specific tone of the Office UK. But um, it's certainly like you, you ease into it a bit more and it becomes less of an issue as the series continues. And I will probably finish it out just because I've seen seven. So why not finish out the 10? Um, but I'm certainly not, you know, it's not an embarrassment, but it's not particularly interesting either. Could you remind me of something? Are they doing more Broadchurch? Yeah, they're doing a second season of Broadchurch. I don't know how or why. It's very foolish, but. So when if this gets never mind, never mind. It, I don't think it's just... going to happen. I don't think this is going to be the smash hit they were hoping it would be. Um, so I don't think it's going to come up. But yeah, I just, I don't get why there's a season two of Broadchurch at all. Um, as much as I did enjoy, not love that, the, that series. Um, I don't expect Grace Point to do particularly well, even given, you know, all the fancy names behind it. So we'll, I mean, we'll see what happens, but I'd be very surprised if both got a second season. Shall right. we, shall we Homeland? What's Homeland? Um, remember when the internet was wrong again? Yeah. Okay, so the internet felt strongly, it seemed, there seemed to be a critical consensus that the first episode of the Homeland premiere uh, was vaguely, was promising or could be interesting, could have fixed some of the issues with the show if only because Brody's dead, um, and take them into a new direction. Um, and then the second episode just 
make sure that it's no, this is the same stupid, horrible show and it's not worth investing in. We should just stop watching. Um, I don't understand what show they all, the internet thought they were watching, but <laughs> I've been watching Homeland this whole time and this felt like Homeland. Yeah. Well, more importantly, it felt like Carrie. All right. Let's rewind a little bit. I was hearing the same thing first cryptically and then more, uh, more specifically when the episodes actually aired because people saw it well in advance and then people were having live reactions as well. To her credit, uh, Libby Hill over at Vox uh, wrote a column defending what we're, let's just get right to it, the almost baby drowning. The almost baby drowning. <laughs> the almost baby drowning. Um, she defended it and literally the entire rest of the internet was angry. She's the only person I could find mm-hmm. who thought that it wasn't a terrible thing. Which, okay, can I just say the fact that the entire internet was outraged, outraged that she almost <laughs> drowned this baby but was totally cool with her blowing up a bunch of innocent people. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh my God. Empathy is so weird. Yep. Or totally fine with just the treatment of everyone on the street, um, just massacring uh, Corey Stoll and just being treated. Like you said, you tweeted about this. Just like, how about the part where they turned uh, every pa- uh, Pakistani citizen into a mindless horde from uh, Walking Dead? <laughs> Yeah, like a couple dozen people would have been okay to to make that seem believable. Maybe if and only a couple of them needed to have stakes. Instead, you have a hundred enraged Pakistanis just completely mobbing and walking deading this van, and they've all got the identical sticks they got from the identical beaten stick store. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, Homeland! Like I just read an article about how bigoted you are, and you're proving it right now. Yeah, that's the thing, Carrie contemplating allowing her baby to drown well it's not like she starts to drown the baby and then realizes oh what am i doing it's she has the baby's like just kind of sitting at the edge of the water the baby falls in she 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 gets the baby out of the water it's like oh that would be bad and then she goes wait would it be bad would it be and then she goes holy crap what am i thinking and pulls the baby out of the water that makes sense to me for her I mean, I don't think it's a good thing, but this notion that we need to like everything that Carrie does or says, or that she needs to be uh, just fit traditional expectations of it's a baby. So therefore, I love it because I have a vagina. I mean, that <laughs> I don't understand where that comes from. And it does. It, Libby Hill talks about this in her article. Like you said, I loved the, the piece and agree with it quite a bit. But this notion that um, there's an inherent unacceptability to this for people because she's a woman who doesn't feel a connection to her baby um, that we wouldn't necessarily have that same problem with, you know, what happens on Deadwood with Swearingen or on any number of other shows with male protagonists doing horrible things to children. Um, I, I think that there's something there and I absolutely agree mm-hmm. with that. And you all should go read the article. Yeah. And just to speed through this, what's funny to me is it was by far the most subversive and interesting thing to happen in either of these episodes. Like everyone else said, the first episode is fine. I, I, I mean, I couldn't shake the feeling that they're setting up Ariane to be Brody Mark II, which I hope they find something more interesting to do with that. Can we all be adults and just deal with subtitles, please? Mm-hmm. Um, that's my other thought. Other than that, that I mean, that scene was the only one that seemed to be doing something kind of unconventional and interesting with these characters, and it was the one that everyone bitched about. So, for once... Homeland people, I feel for you. Yeah. 
Yep. And the last thing I'll say about it is, uh, how about one of these shows once goes, hey, why don't you put the kid up for adoption? <laughs> Just, you know, yeah, seriously. Consider consider, it. There's a lot of people who want to have a kid who can't have a kid, especially an adorable little Brody, freaky, freakishly looking like Brody uh, baby. I'm sure there oh, are- man, I noticed that too. I'm sure there are people who would love to have that baby. Uh, so- and would take excellent care of that baby. The fact that it just doesn't get brought up once and never seems to get brought up in these kinds of situations is very odd to me. And it gets frustrating, even more frustrating every time it happens. Do you think it was wearing a little baby wig? <laughs> no, I think they just, they had a giant cattle call and they're like, we want only gingers. And the right baby walked in. Oh man, Th- that's the call that baby gingers have been waiting for. <laughs> Well, uh, you know what a call none of us have been waiting for? Uh, the the call of the stalker pilot. Um, <laughs> I don't think we even... Do we care? Do we have the energy to spotlight of shame this? It's pretty... No. It, it's, it, it earns it. This is, this is pretty damn offensive. But it involves a time and energy commitment we just don't have. Can I, I can sum this up in just a couple of thoughts. First of all, the promo for this, at least on global TV here in, in Canada... Uh, the tagline for it was stalker the new drama that won't let you go which was which perfectly sets the tone for the sensitivity and wit level of stalker so kudos to the global tv people uh yeah this show is just terrible like basically we all knew what happened at the beginning of in the teaser because we had basically been told by critics if you were curious out there what what all the hullabaloo was about and then i watched it i was like Oh, they they managed to not oversell how horrifying and terrible and offensive this is. Um, the fact, you know, the, the the issue I had most with this pilot was not the content, uh, though the performances are not good, the writing is not good. But it's this, this sense of glee and excitement that comes across, at least came across to me, from the creator and... <clears throat> from the creator or the creative team behind the show. Like, they're so excited to victimize lots of people, mostly women, but let's not limit ourselves. Let's victimize everyone. There's so many awesome stories we can tell. It's going to be so much fun to terrorize people. And uh, just there was no sense of, hey, this is a bad thing that happens. Let's treat it with let's treat it with gravitas. I, let's just say I was very I, I laughed audibly out loud when I saw the response from I don't remember the name of the organization, but basically the largest uh organization in the United States uh, for anti-stalker um, involvement and outreach and, and all that. They wrote an open letter and said, this is horrible. Uh, CBS, take this down because the show is destructive and is uh, basically an abomination. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. I'm sure CBS doesn't care. Um, do The last thing I have is really just that, that final sequence. Are we going to talk about that at all? Um, it was hilarious. Where they bury any and all goodwill you might have had towards the Maggie Q character? Well, no, not that. Uh, well, I mean, she's stupid because who has who is a stalker cop and it clearly has a fear of being stalked or some baggage about it and doesn't have actual curtains? I'm sorry. <laughs> curtains are not that tri- tricky to get. But no, it's it was the use of creep and the show being right. serious about the use of... It's not like they were like... All of a sudden, we're trying to be comedy. They think they're being profound by using creep. And, you know, anyone could be a stalker, even our two leads, because you make them both stalkers. And then we also make the woman a stalky, because if we're going to have one of our two main cops get stalked, it's got to be the woman. 
I mean, here's the thing to me about Stalker. Everyone is right about why it's bad, which is one of the reasons I don't want to go on about it too long. I love horror movies. I love some extremely socially irresponsible horror movies that do all the things that you've complained about mm-hmm. unabashedly. I think it's perfectly possible to snip out the opening sequence of Stalker, which doesn't tell you anything about the characters, and stitch it onto a show that's actually good. I do believe that. I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with hyperviolent content. This show just happens to be really, really dumb. Really, really dumb about the way that it handles those things, about the way it talks about them. And it's just so witless on every level. I it's It's bad even at being bad. Like, for instance making the Dermot, the Dylan McDermott character um you know this creepy misogynistic chauvinistic asshole is a really bad idea don't get me wrong but they're not even particularly good at it you know if you're going to make the guy a super cop who's also a stalker you should make him the greatest stalker ever instead he's <laughs> a really bad stalker he's going in broad daylight, jogging around in all black clothes. Hey, hey he's within... got a baseball cap on, sir. He, he he does have a baseball cap. And then, like, of course, the second time he's out stalking his ex-wife, she spots him and she's like, and he, she's like, I saw you in one of the only really legitimately funny moments of, of the pilot. He's like, he has this reaction of like, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, don't watch Stalker. Yeah. Um, they managed unless, to be misogynistic, yeah. even not in the stalking scenes. When they have like the, the him saying about how, uh, why would you dress like this if you don't want to be ogled and objectified? And she says, because I like how I feel, not to because of you and he goes no that's not a thing (laughs) (laughs) oh that's just a thing women make up that's not how they really feel it's like oh my god wow wow yeah anyway it's bad don't watch it um (laughs) watch don't watch it read about it or watch it after it's been canceled or something i anyway it's hopefully it gets canceled it's it's a it, it didn't get great ratings so i'm hoping that it will just continue to fade away uh but a show that's not fading away as much as a character maybe is, is The Nick. How's that for an awkward transition? Working late a lot? <laughs> yeah, this is good. I only have one comment about The Nick this week, really, which is that I feel like editing in TV is something that people don't talk about a lot. And I want everyone who watches The Nick to do a fun exercise with me. You know that I want to say mid to early mid episode sequence where Thack is at a surgeon's conference and he's listening to the Jewish surgeon present his invention. The show does something really interesting in that sequence where there is, I think my, my rhythmic sense might be off, but I feel like we get a set of maybe 50 shots or so that are almost exactly the same length, like maybe two and a half seconds, but not quite. And what I was doing by the midpoint of, of, of the scene, which does such an amazing job of getting you into Thack's completely fucked up mindset at the time, I started snapping my fingers along with the cuts and I was noticing it wasn't quite a rhythm, but it was really close. Mm-hmm. Like it was just a little bit off kilter. Oh my God. Soderbergh, I love you when you do wacky shit like that. <laughs> well, that's the kind of stuff that is so effective. It just so effectively puts you in his, he's just off. He's because mm-hmm. he's so fucked up. So it, it, it makes you feel almost physically ill to yeah. watch that sequence, or at least I thought so. I mean, the rest of the episode is fine. Uh, it's not one of the most eventful ones, but I just, every once in a while, I just have to marvel at the technical details on that show. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't really have much to say about the Nick either. Um, I, I'm so not interested in Thak as Addict. Um, there's more of it coming, guys. Uh, and so I'm going to have less to say about uh, the Nick in the next couple of weeks. But I'm sure we'll t- say quite a bit when we get to the finale and kind of look back on the, on the season as a whole. Uh, Birdie and Lucy, ugh, don't care. I know Birdie loves her, I guess. Poor Birdie. <laughs> Poor Birdie. He's... He's. He, I've said this before, but I really love that character. He's sort of like the the quiet breakout of the show, and I. Uh, I. Everyone just wants the best for him. Um, and I did really. I did have a nice little oh, shipper moment for Algy and uh and and you know his his new love uh, as doomed as they likely are. Who do you think is going to get pregnant first, her or Lucy? Oh God, hopefully neither. But I will say that uh, the other my other thought about the Nick this week is it does a really good job of making sex seem enjoyable. Like, I'm, I don't know what it is about the way it's shot, but, like, so many, especially prestige dramas, they they have, like, the thrusts and then the regret. But I feel like <laughs> the Nick, even with characters who shouldn't be fucking or will feel bad about it later, they take the time to make sure that everyone's enjoying themselves. Yeah, which is which is a nice change. And we'll talk about some of that in the next couple of weeks, I'm sure, as well. But first, let's move on to Boardwalk Empire, King of Norway. Uh, I Again, I don't have much to say about Boardwalk Empire this week other than I really like the stuff we got um, with Gretchen Mall. I really liked to see seeing Chalky White back and in that suit, which is obviously not where he was suit-wise, but it's a nice step up from the other the previous episode. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, fun with uh, <laughs> fun with Mueller um, in Chicago. And with Stephen Graham in general as Capone, who I feel like we have we've barely mentioned ever before, and he's gotten a lot to do in these last couple episodes. Kind of familiar notes, but Stephen Graham is such an such a great ham, really, especially in that role. The way he is, I mean, was Capone a small guy? Is that why they mm-hmm. one of the reasons they cast him? The you know, it's it's a typical beat having the small guy be the biggest personality in the room, but he owns it and does some some really really great stuff in his scenes in these episodes obviously michael shannon is in there too i'm still waiting for the plot point where we get to see gretchen mall's de-aging machine but uh i guess it's still coming margaret continues to be a delight yeah she's general. great yeah so much fun um shall we move on to the good wife Keep yes things snappy okay well the Keep good wife snappy Dear God, yeah, we got, uh, we're so behind our intended timeline here. I'm just going to say, this was delightful. And uh, once again, yes, when I was watching it, I could hear other critics who get tired of the gimmick of the week twist on the court procedure thing that the good wife likes to do. I could hear them in my brain, but I didn't care because I had so much fun with the Christian arbitration that I was fine with it. First of all, I feel like it's been a while since they've done gimmick of the week. It's been a while. probably eight or nine or ten episodes counting last season so i was totally cool with it it brought in robert sean leonard probably for just this episode so i was totally cool with it he was really nice and low-key in that role as befits him somebody get him a regular role please um when richard thomas comes in and is like binding binding christian arbitration the second those words come out it's like okay it's one of these great fantastic <laughs> um and i like the unexpected notes that we get out of it like when grace comes in and helps alicia out but also sort of surprises her with her intelligence in a funny warm sort of way that the good wife always finds time for um i mean honestly i wasn't as hot on the episode as you probably mostly because i really didn't like the late episode castro scene where he kind of throws himself under the bus by just going from subtle huge asshole 
to totally unsubtle in your face, huge asshole, in the space of about 45 seconds so that we can get the plot gears cranking in that direction. But other than that, it is a pretty damn fun episode. Well, I don't feel like he's been subtle asshole for a while. I feel like he's been cackly, maniacal, definite, you know, turn to 11 assholes since last season even when he was uh, battling battling things out with uh, Finn so maybe that's part of it as well um yeah that really really worked for me and also he feels like the kind of character who would completely not understand Alicia and therefore completely misread her completely misread uh the situation and because he sees only what he would do if he were in her shoes and not understand that some people aren't just like you giant asshole person. I think Michael Service has just been so much fun in that role. Um that, that has certainly helped with it. But um but no, when 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 as soon as he mentions Will I was like, oh you should not have done that which is what they're going for. And for you it might not have worked, but for me it really did. Yeah, I guess for me I was hoping I've I've just been loving the cognitive dissonance of of Alicia being, No, I am not going to run and everyone around her being like, Yes you are, let's start it's like no guys i was just i was getting such a kick out of that dynamic and i maybe i wasn't quite ready to let go of it so soon because it really does seem like i mean next week's episode is called oppo research mm-hmm. which is a process teased by michael Cerverus this week that episode is written by the kings so i feel like it's gonna it that episode is gonna be the one that's gonna have to sell us on this plot line for basically the next like the rest of the season and i if anyone can do it it's the kings and i'm so stoked for that yeah, um, let's see. The other things that we should mention um, are I, I like I like what we seem to be getting with Carrie now where I could see like in this episode, it's like, oh, is this the episode where Alicia says Carrie should go up for state's attorney? Because I think he's really ready to be done with Lamont Bishop and all the shady stuff that he's surrounded by. I mean, I like that they remind you in this episode that he worked for the, uh, he, you know, he was a prosecutor and he really does not seem comfortable with everything that's, that's happening. And with just the, the loud <laughs> back and forth of the court case that ends in arbitration as well. Um, so I, you know, I really think that stuff is, if that's where they're going, I think they're doing a good job of telegraphing that, but in a way that feels honest to the character. I feel like he's too young to go for a state's attorney, but mm-hmm. uh, you, you. But then again, I mean, Alicia going for a state's attorney, given that she just started a firm, also yep. seems kind of silly to me. I don't know. I'm again, they're gonna really have to work to make that where they're very clearly or seem to be very clearly going with this. Oh, I hate trying to guess what the good wife is doing. Anyway, the last thing we had to mention is Head Steinem. Yes, Gloria Steinem, in what must be the best appearance by a real life person as themselves or a version of themselves uh in a good wife episode you know her actual appearance is fine but head gloria steinem honestly they could do that every fourth episode from now on and i'd be totally cool with it (laughs) it was just delightful um i'm very the scene they brought her in for um where she with gloria steinem you know alicia meets gloria steinem worked uh like gangbusters but and was fun but then the the flashes of I need you to take over for me. You could be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> just like well, and it's a rare flash of Alicia just being vain as hell, and just which being I human, really appreciated. You yeah. know, like that's a big deal. And you know, one of her heroes just said, "You're great. I think you should do this." You know, mm-hmm. I like that she still says, "You know what? What pivots her is not that. 
it's the conversation with Castro. And well, so it I, helps. It doesn't hurt, certainly. But, <laughs> you know, it's... I, I, I really like the treatment of that. It, it was very effective for me. And like uh, and so your review of, of this is up? Is, is on the website. I try to get it up every Sunday night. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes it's Monday morning. But uh, th- this time it was late Sunday night. And uh, your review of The Good Wife is up. My review of Doctor Who is up. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, so so this week, Doctor Who did a thing. It's not done for quite a long time. Not really in the new new series as far as I can think. Um, and that is they did that thing that I love when genre shows do where they use the lens of science fiction or fantasy to talk about a tricky or difficult political issue or sociological issue. In this case, it's a just kind of fun uh, adventure, creepy space spiders, you know, on the moon with Courtney and Clara and the doctor until all of a sudden left turn. It's an abortion episode. Uh, and we're yes, we're actually doing this, and I yeah I I I loved that they did that. I love they had that they had the balls to do it. We're gonna talk about whether or not they should have and how it went and what we think they were saying or whatever. Well, that'll all come next. But this just first of all, my hats off to Doctor Who for having way more balls than I thought that they had, at least under the current administration. <laughs> I wonder was it just was someone just not paying enough attention. Like I, I wonder. Yeah, I I wonder if it, like was it a calculated decision on everyone's part that everyone sort of went into, into the season? You know what, guys, we should do an abortion episode. Did, did am I the only one who finds that hard to imagine? Well, considering the number of reviews who don't seem to have picked up on the barely subtext of several of the late episode scenes, uh, no. I don't think that's I, I don't think you're the only one pondering that. Uh, but I don't know how you could possibly not see this subtext. I have a question for you, Kate, because you've seen um, literally hundreds of times more Doctor Who than I have. You are of all the people I've ever met, probably the foremost Doctor Who scholar <laughs> or like at worst, second or third place. Um, would you define Doctor Who gun to your head? primarily as speculative fiction or as a family series? Hmm. I hope you're leaving in all this silence. I want to put a bunch of caveats in because the show has changed so many times. Uh, with, with each showrunner and with each doctor, there's a different... Really, with each doctor, but... It, as even more with each showrunner, there's a very different vibe, or there can be a very different vibe to the show. And there are certainly eras that are not anywhere near as family friendly, and there are certainly eras that are not nearly as speculative fictiony. If I look at the entire run, I would probably say family programming. Um, okay. But I would say the heights of the show have been much more, for at least for me, the creative heights of the show, the ones that the parts of the show that everybody goes back to. Uh, are family friendly, but they are more than that. They are all they are very steeped in the speculative fiction or fantasy or sci-fi tradition. That's ex- that's exactly the kind of nuanced answer I was hoping for. I guess what I find so strange and so vexing, and so like just even discussing this episode with you, I was literally getting a headache after about fifteen minutes. 
It's just, why did they think it was a good idea to get into uh, whether or not they meant to have a slant in it or not? One of the most primally unsolvable or intractable conflicts in, you know, the last few centuries of human life in the context of basically a kid show. Because, like, I'm trying to imagine, it's, it's funny, I was trying to imagine, what if Adventure Time did an abortion episode? And I can actually imagine a great Adventure Time abortion episode, because oh, yeah. I feel like the, <laughs> the, the, basic, um, the basic maturity level of Adventure Time is insanely high, especially compared to other family-oriented shows, and I'd argue it's higher than Doctor Who. <clears throat> anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. I just feel like if you're going to do an abortion episode in the context of Doctor Who you were going to end up feeling kind of pro-life because you just can't help it because the show itself is kind of pro-everything. So, uh, it was it was kind of just a bad idea, I think. Okay. Um, well, I disagree, but I see where you're coming from. And for me, um, and, and I've seen the frustration from a segment of the fan base out there that this felt very much to them like a pro-life doctrine and like and not even more than an anti-choice doctrine because the earth makes its decision and Clara says, I don't care. I'm taking the choice away from you. But it depends on if you think that the perspective is supposed to be with Clara or with the earth and whose whose choice is the one that we are supposed to be keying into. Um and and really, for me, what this all comes down to is, yes, it's an abortion episode, but I look at it not the discussion not being around the the moon and the, the space dragon, which, come on, there's a space dragon. That's pretty cool. Um, I prefer space chicken, but. <laughs> but um, but because there, there was only ever going to be one answer to that. We already knew if, if you've seen Doctor Who at all, if you're familiar with it at all, you know how that's going to end. You know that they're going to not kill the unique creature in the universe and that it's going to turn out to be the correct choice they're going to choose life that that's the show that doctor who is and it has always been the ethos of the show they've had very similar situations in the past even just with the beast below with amy where there's like do they kill this unique space whale or do they let all the people living on the space whale die those are the options that they're presented and she finds a third answer in this option uh, this episode, they don't give a third option, and so therefore the answer is going to have to be the, that the correct choice is to save the save life. But for me, the conversation about abortion and, and pro-choice, pro-life, all of that is not in that scene because there is only one answer. There isn't a choice in that scene because of the show The Doctor Who is. It's the conversation that Clara and the Doctor have about if he was right to leave or if and, and and force her to make this decision on her own with with you know avoid Courtney on one side and the astronaut on the other side but basically Clara was the deciding vote if it's up to, you know the doctor's right to leave her to make that choice if it is her choice it is her to extend the metaphor it is her body it is her choice or if it is the life the choice is equally the doctor's he is just as responsible as she is and it was wrong for her, him to leave her to make that choice. Whether it was the respectful choice as a doctor sees it to be, um, to, to just have her make it on her own and just go with whatever she says, or if he needed to be included. 
how does it affect the metaphor that none of them would be facing this predicament if it weren't for the doctor? Why would none of them be facing the predicament? Because he brought them there. Yeah, but the 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 astronaut would still be facing the predicament. Yeah, but it's Clara who makes the decision. Yeah, she she's the deciding vote. Yeah, and she's only the deciding vote because of the doctor. Okay, but that doesn't that doesn't change. I don't see how that changes the conflict. I think it does because he runs away. He brings her there and then he leaves, mm -hmm. which I feel like make. I know that the the theoretical binary is she is trying to make him stick around so that he can make the choice for her. Um, and so he leaves, but I, there's, there's a false binary there to me that's, that feels kind of forced. Like either he stays and makes the decision or he leaves and she makes the decision. He can't stick around and maybe they could have a dialogue, uh, which feels like what should actually happen. But instead he just leaves and it makes him once again seem like a giant asshole. Well, and I think that's some of the, the issue that has, that certain fans have had with this episode. For me, that comes down to um, Clara and her actions in this episode and her in in that moment. And and it's, she has a different reaction to this than other companions would have had, which I like the specificity of that for, for her as a companion. But if they wanted, I, I think they needed to do a better job of expressing or of showing her trying to have a conversation and trying to engage the doctor in this if that's what they're going for, if they want it. Because, and I do think that maybe that's an option, except that the, she doesn't know anything the doctor doesn't know. The doctor doesn't know anything that she doesn't know. And she keeps telling the doctor to tell her what to do. I don't think it's about knowledge, though. I think it's about the fact that he leaves her basically alone to make the decision or, you know, with, mm -hmm. with people who aren't, that she's not, you know, as directly as companionated with. It's like she, you know, she's she's left by her partner. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily about secret knowledge. It's about, you know, having feeling like you you have someone there with you to make a decision, as you would with an abortion. It's again, mm -hmm. not necessarily about secret knowledge. It's about abandonment, and that's why, to me, the only part of the episode that really works is when he comes back and she's livid, and it's a really nicely written and acted scene. And then, but everything else, especially after that, when. Danny is talking to her about it and is like, you're not really mad. And she's like, oh, I guess I'm not really mad. I mean, she doesn't say that, but it feels like it's coming later. Like, oh, can't she just be really mad for a while? Because it seems like she should be. I think she is really mad. We talk about that scene with Danny. I really like that scene as well because she asks him, wasn't he wrong to do this? And Danny does not touch that. He's like, yeah. And I like that, like, once again, they don't have the man tell Clara how to feel or what to think or if she was right or wrong. He just says, I know, I recognize this expression that I see in you. I recognize this struggle that I see in you because I've had it. And um, we're going to get his episode, I'm sure, soon, explaining all this backstory that they keep hinting at. But again, what he says is very true that if you're, if she's still angry, it's because she hasn't let go of the doctor. And so she's still thinking about him. And so she's still angry. She hasn't just cut him out of her brain because she doesn't care because she's done with him. Or maybe she's still angry because she almost had to make a totally history changing decision by herself that she shouldn't have had to make. Well, she did make a history changing well, decision sorry, by herself. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, but yeah. And and that's something that I kind of touch on in my review. Clara hasn't been put in this position before. 
the she's been very much i mean and this is one of the problems i had with last season her relationship with the 11th doctor he did not treat her as an equal he did not particularly seem to respect her and certainly kept information from her all the time so that she couldn't possibly fully trust him uh, and so she's been a sidekick and here he asks her he demands an equal partnership from her and he removes himself from the equation so he cannot possibly affect the the outcome. Would it have been better if he had just sat there and said nothing? Would that be better? Well, you mean, da sorry, Danny or the doctor? The doctor. Uh, if he had not left you know, in the TARDIS, but had just refused to do anything because he honestly felt it was not his place. I feel like that would have been exactly the same. Okay. Wait, if you're removing yourself from the situation saying, I am not going to provide any input or aid of any kind, that's kind of the same as sitting there and not saying anything. Yeah, I would agree. Um, though, I, I think, see, the thing is that I find so interesting is that I completely respect uh, where Clara is coming from. And I, I agree that that scene was wonderful between uh, Clara and the doctor. I love that she tells him, don't you dare tell me to watch my language. That's no, <laughs> we're not doing that right now. I love that. Uh, I disagree with her. I think the doctor was right, but I completely agree with her. I, I, I see the honesty and the truth and the merit in her anger. And uh, that's what I find so interesting about this episode. So wait a second. So if you were in the doctor's position, you would have left. Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> if I was, you don't you know, think that's completely fucked up? Well, I, I'm, you know, taking out, out if you want to take away the abortion parallel, because I don't think that anyone can know what they're going to do in that situation until they're presented with it. Um, if it was the Earth's moon and I, you know, and it's some other planet's moon and you have the people of that planet there. I mean, it's a completely out of character thing for him because he decides the fate of planets all the time. Uh, so, you know, the notion that this is a particularly important one that he does not, you know, it's a prime directive moment. You're leaving behind a friend during a traumatic event. That to me is what it's about. It's not about, you know, making the choice for them or having more information. It's you've got a friend here going through some really real shit and you're just leaving. What was he supposed to do? Be there. Be How present. was he supposed to be there? Not leave and have a conversation have you never not been in a in a crisis and just found that having someone to talk to about it made it instantly better because that's what i that's find true. happens in every crisis ever okay that's true that's a good point and you know obviously i don't have <laughs> i've don't have a problem with that at all um and i would like to think i would do that for my friend but <laughs> but the thing is that that's what they're not presenting that as and that's the trouble. Maybe that's a flaw with with the episode. They don't present that as Clara's desire. She just keeps saying, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Not literally, but that's what she's asking of him. Well, and to try to wrap this up for me, like that to me is is why Doctor Who should not have attempted a quasi-abortion episode. Because it I, it feels like for us to do an, a, an abortion episode, we need to have this binary set up here. And for that ending to not be a possibility... And let the whole point of touching on issues in speculative fiction is there's supposed to be freedom. There's supposed to be the idea for that I that you know concepts and conflicts and warring notions can duke it out in a relatively unfettered unfettered fashion, even if it's through cloak and dagger of character and metaphor and whatever. And that's not even an option here, which makes me wonder why did they bother? Hmm. Okay. Well, I. 
I always love shows tackling ideas, um, especially genre shows. And I'm very glad that Doctor Who did this. I would love to see them do more of this. Not necessarily with this topic, but... Um, <laughs> the whole abortion season. You know. <laughs> but, but no, I love that they... Because, again, this conversation to me came not down to is abortion right, but is is forcing that choice upon someone. If, if someone's presented with a choice and you feel the only the best thing you can do is to leave them to make it themselves and they feel the best thing you can do is to stay and not and and, and help them make the decision. What do you do? And so I guess that's that's where I'm seeing that's what I think they did a good job with. And I like that there aren't there isn't a correct answer. The show doesn't present it as a correct answer. The show doesn't say Clara was right or the doctor was right. It's more on Clara's side than the doctor, but I think it's there's leeway there. And I like the, that that um, I like that leeway. I like that there's an uh, that they don't give a correct answer. Um, and I hope that it affects. I'm assuming because it doesn't seem like Clara's in the next episode. I'm hoping that this affects their relationship moving forward, and you know we start to see the cracks. Yeah. I, I don't think I have anything more to add. I just, the whole experiment was just so bizarre. And just the fact that there was so little discussion around this episode afterwards, I think is indicative of the fact that people don't really want to talk about the season in general, because I, I think, I feel like a large fanboy slash fangirl contingent has just checked out of the Capaldi era. They've decided it seems like, or maybe it's because they're sick of the Moffat era. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot less discussion kicking around than usual, but yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see where they're going with it, but a lot about this just made me feel weird and icky and just wrong. Yeah, well, I, I was like, there's so much you could write about this, and yet the episode everybody was talking about was Listen. Map the internet. Oh, the internet. Uh, anyways, uh, again, my review's up at soundonsite.org. I would love to hear what you everybody out there thinks. I think there's, like I said, there's no right answer, and those are sometimes the most fun conversations to have. So what wins your week in drama? Uh, I will I will give it to the affair in the hopes that people check it out. Okay, and I will give it to I'll give it to Kill the Moon just because I've been thinking about it. It's uh, and I did think it was a good episode aside from from all of that with a very strong honorable mention to the Good Wife because it just was so much fun. Um, but a few show notes here at the end. You can find a post up for this episode at soundnotesite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like us in, on Facebook to follow the goings on at Soundnotesite TV. You can find us in iTunes. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed where you can leave a, a rating or a review. We would greatly appreciate it and it does help other people find the show. You can email us the televerse at gmail.com and of course we're both on Twitter. I am at the televerse and Simon you are? At Sucker Howell. And what is our question of the week? Abortion? No. Um, <laughs> in honor of Mulaney, what was the last show that you thought was the biggest waste of talent? Whether it was creatives or people in front or preferably both. Preferably both. I'm going to have to think about that one because you know, last year was a, a TV season of, oh, look at this amazing cast. Oh, they're going to do nothing with them. I see. A great cast can't help the writing. Ah, I've learned this lesson now. Um, so there are a lot of choices in that realm, but uh, I'll have to think about it to come up with a good creative answer. Do you have an answer? My slightly mean answer is the Mindy Project. <laughs> oh, oh, there's so many people I love who have guessed it on and at various points been in the regular cast of that show, and I just find it so viscerally unappealing. Hmm. 
Intriguing. Uh, yeah, so let us know what you think. That's a, that's a very interesting and potentially hilarious uh, question. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. But now we're going to take a break and come back with Emma Fraser of TV at My Wardrobe to talk Alias. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I don't know what you put in that stuff. Wow. I'd rather not make this too painful. Me too. Thanks. Glad we're on the same page. It's good. Whoa. Who are you working for? I'll not ask you again. Okay. Get a pen. Write this down. E M E T I B. You got that? Yes. Okay. Now reverse it. I've got bad news for you, man. I am your worst enemy. I've got nothing to lose. It's not exactly true. You have teeth. Televerse. This is Kate Kulsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, we are talking about a show that I just have such incredibly fond memories of. I watched it live. I have marathoned at least part of it many, many times. It's Alias. So much fun. And here to help us talk about it from TV at My Wardrobe is Emma Fraser. Uh, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. <laughs> what made you want to talk about Alias? Uh, it's just one of those shows that I didn't get into when it first aired I started watching it as it was on TV so I had to like marathon quite a big chunk of it before I got to the like the point where they were on at TV um and it was just so intriguing and I like the spy stuff spy stuff's fun and the wigs and costumes and it was just one of those ones that just seemed like a good one to talk about yeah, it's such an energetic show. And certainly, I mean, obviously, this is J.J. Abrams' second TV show. We've now talked about, on the DVD shelf, Felicity. This, and we're doing Alias today. We've talked about um, Lost. So I think that means eventually we might have to do What About Brian, which <laughs> I'm a little afraid for. Uh, but it really is such an interesting show to think about in that context, in, in relation to Felicity, this idea that he had while making Felicity of what if she was just all of a sudden a spy and like, she still had to be in college, but then she could go off on badass spy missions. Uh, and that sort of led to the show alias. Uh, there's so much to see here in this sort of the transition of, of JJ Abrams from typical college student character drama to sci-fi ridiculousness with all the Rambaldi stuff and all this arc arcing mystery over the course of the series. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. Uh, but yes. <laughs> it's certainly for me, I think it's one of the great pilots. I think it's, 
one of the uh, more interesting and successful first two seasons of a TV show that I've seen. And then the third season happens. <laughs> Do you have yes. any thoughts? Well, weirdly, I'm actually watching Felicity at the moment for the first time. So I'm kind of doing it in a weird reverse J.J. Abrams thing. So I started, I watched Lost first and that made me want to watch Alias. And now I've come back to the start of his career. So it's kind of weird seeing where things came from and seeing where, like, you know, there's the daddy issues in all of them and actors who appear in all of them. And yeah, I would agree with you. The first two seasons, I think, are really, really, really fun. And then it all does sort of kind of get convoluted and go off into mythology mess. Um, but yeah, the whole like college dynamic in the first season was really like an interesting jumping off point for me. Yeah. I well, and, you know, with it's very strange for me to see this as a show that has such energy and does so so many is willing to take so many risks we'll talk about phase one um and yeah. just the show saying <laughs> screw it we're blowing ourselves up uh because super bowl but <laughs> it was so unwilling to commit to change in season three that it shot itself in the foot it was so wedded to this notion of sydney and vaughn that i i think that the show's unwillingness to have sid actually deal with that and move on um, trying yeah. to stay spoiler free ish <laughs> for this first part, <laughs> uh, really kind of killed the show. At least it really put it back a long way and it gave it a giant hole that it had to dig out of. And I think it was never really the same after that. Um, Simon, I know a little bit of what you think about Alias from talking beforehand, but I, I'm, let's just say I get the sense that maybe this isn't your show and I can't say that I'm surprised. It, how do you feel about Alias? Before I answer that question, I actually have questions. Okay. <laughs> First question, is it safe to say, based on the number of writing credits that he has, that this is the most hands-on J.J. Abrams ever actually got with a TV series? Um, I would say, other than Felicity, doesn't he write a lot of Felicity? He, I'm on season three at the moment, and he's still writing and directing. I think he leaves at the end of season three. So I think it's only the final season of Felicity that he's not on. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think this one, he definitely was on there for quite a while as well. Right. He does a lot of writing and directing, whereas I feel like he kind of split the vision with Matt Reeves a little yeah, bit on Felicity, yeah. right? Yeah. This yeah. feels much more like him steering the ship. And I say feels because he's credited a lot. And because of my second question, what do you guys take to be the meaning of the word hack? Because <laughs> I feel like in the last few weeks, I've heard a few different definitions. Kate, what do you what do you think hack means? If someone is a hack, I take it to mean uh, that they they aren't very talented. They uh, they whether or not they are trying to do something and just aren't successful or they just don't legitimately don't care. Like you could have that conversation about um, like a Brett, a Brett Ratner whether or, or or somebody who's trying for a a vision and then you just disagree, you think it doesn't work, or somebody who doesn't care whether something's good, they're just gonna throw a bunch of schlock on the screen to try to get you know money. There's I think there's differences there, but I think it's this idea of uh, you keep repeating yourself, you you aren't doing anything inventive, and uh, uh, yeah, you just keep turning out crap basically <laughs> because. Um, increasingly over time, I mean, I, I was talking about the concept of hackery with someone on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I swear to God, I'm going somewhere with this. And 
um, and what that other person had to say, because we were talking about someone else being a hag, not J.J. Abrams, uh, they were mentioning that it, 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 according to their definition of hack, you know, a hack isn't necessarily unskilled. A hack is maybe just someone who doesn't have anything, who doesn't necessarily have their own voice or anything truly distinctive to bring to the table. I'm not quite sure the hack label applies to J.J. Abrams, but I do think he has some extremely hackish tendencies a lot of the time. And I've been thinking about this for even stuff that he's done recently, like all the way up to the second Star Trek movie, which the further I get away from it, the more it just pisses me off. Um, and actually I think Star, Star Wars is a way better fit for him, but that's a def- that's a discussion for another time. In the spirit of full disclosure, I had never seen Alias before and I was not able to get past, I mean, uh, Kate, you informed me that you, the first two seasons were, were by far your favorite. I was able to catch a little over a dozen episodes from those first two seasons and throughout those 12 or 13 or 14 episodes, there was not one episode, not one moment that had a trace of real wit and soul to it, with very rare exceptions. The The characters just seemed really bland to me for the most part. The dialogue is 99% expository or just blandly moving the plot from one piece to another. And frankly, when the character played by Bradley Cooper is the one who feels most like a human, you're in trouble. <laughs> well, you know, I disagree, but I respect your opinion, and I'm sure we'll have fun talking <laughs> about it. Uh, I love these characters, a lot of them, not all of them, but uh, but we'll talk about it. It'll be it'll be fun. Emma, do you have any thoughts? Well, to go back to the whole like J.J. Abrams hack question, I was gonna say I always think he's really good at beginnings of things. So like the Lost Pilot the first couple of seasons of this, the first couple of seasons so far of Felicity, he seems to land, like, the starts of things very well. It's the wrapping up that isn't, like, you know, progressing the story along a lot further, but he kind of seems to jump ship onto other projects, and maybe he kind of likes the start, but not the the middle or end. I don't know if that's, like, a weird theory. He's but... the Don Draper of showrunners. Yeah. He really likes the beginnings <laughs> of things. Yeah, like, he seems to kind of, not. I mean, I don't know if he gets bored or other people, like, give him another project to do or something, but he seems to, yeah, just be good at ideas and then not at the completion of the whole thing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. He's better at starting than, you know, and and I know for some people that was a big uh, issue with Lost. Lost, for me, is very much Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse's show. He was involved with it, obviously, early on, but... That's so much more their show that I don't even yeah. necessarily connect it. But I think this is a show that starts out really well. Uh, you know, there's this fun Rimbaldi stuff, but the trouble is he's got these great ideas uh, for like visual cues, like the red ball and like, oh, Rimbaldi was this guy. And and when you <laughs> page over 47, page 47, exactly. when you over plan that stuff and have a specific answer to everything, often that just can really cramp narratively. And I know that's something that we saw uh, to to an extent with Breaking Bad, the season that was the season they had all figured everything out beforehand was probably was one of their less successful seasons, comparatively, at least. That show's amazing, obviously, but it's important for a lot of showrunners to for them to have space to adjust as needed when you find your weak points, your strong points in your cast, when you discover chemistry between certain actors or uh, like realize that there's a void in your show, that so you need to change things. Uh, so So having open-ended mysteries or 
arcing ideas uh, certainly I think is a intelligent way to go about creating your mythology for your show. But the trouble is, I don't think he had any idea of what anything was. And he spent so much time building up these grand mysteries that they couldn't possibly pay off in any satisfying way. Um, and when you have the show, the show also seems very invested in Sydney and Vaughn to a level that I just never was. And that's because as much as I enjoy the character of Vaughn, and I think there's some good moments for Michael Vartan, I just, I don't care about that, <laughs> about him. I don't care about them together. I have no investment in them as a couple as compared to just her. I'm very invested in Sydney. Can I just say a couple of quick things about the Sydney and Vaughn thing? First of all, one of the few blessings of the show is that when Vaughn first, appe first appears, I really thought he was Ed Burns. <laughs> and I was really, really glad to figure out that he wasn't because he's the blandest mofo on the planet. Uh, two, there's this whole thread in, in the, you know, in those first season and a half or whatever before it gets resolved about, oh, you know, we can't be together because, you know, it's real liabilities. We'll live in trouble. You're super spies. All right. If you want to get it on once in a while, figure it out. Come on. <laughs> all right. That's it for now. See, that has more to do with Danny and her dealing with her stuff, you know, recovering from that loss and everything, trauma, whatever. Here's the thing. Season three, if they had just gone, if, if they had just realized they had Bradley Cooper there and he could be very good on the show and given him anything to do and just kind of gotten rid of Vaughn and changed the dynamic. If they'd been willing to change the dynamic of the show, I think there's a lot they could have explored. Like, what do you do if you wake up and your your true love is, or whatever, is married, and it's you've been dead for two years, and you have to pick up the pieces? That's messy. Like, what if the wife, the new wife, isn't random evil spy person, <laughs> but is an actual character, and everything is so much messier and so much harder? I think the show could have really delved into the characters with that in season three, but instead they backed away from that challenge and went for heightening everything even further. And that's where I see the, the derailing happening in season three. And then they only managed to somewhat recover for me in season four and five. Yeah. I, I don't care about Sydney and Vaughn either, like at all. And I kind of ship in every single show I watch. And in, in this one, I was like, I do not care about them as a couple. I was actually more of a Will and Sydney uh, fan. Um, so it was always kind of a shame that he left. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It was kind of bringing Lauren in and having A, Melissa George and B, that terrible storyline definitely made season three the worst for me as well. Well, I mean, I, I was really... When you watch season one, it's very interesting to see some of the different... Uh, flaws or, or struggles of the show. So season one, season two, there's a lot that it has going for it. But I hated Will for season one because <laughs> he spends the entire season. You should theoretically be rooting for him because right. he's because of what he he's the investigative journalist. He's you know the plucky gonna solve whatever. Um, but he just spends all of his time nearly getting himself and our protagonist killed. Yes, because he won't just listen to her. Yeah. Uh, and and so when that change when that dynamic changes, you know, th there are certain episodes that I absolutely love from this show, or that I have a very strong affinity for, even if maybe they're not great all time great television. I really enjoy them. And a big one is uh, Rendezvous from season one, which is the episode yes. where Will finds out and loses his shit. It's hilarious. Yeah. 
And, and yeah. watching that dynamic change throughout season two, I thought it was just the show was so much stronger when Sydney had a person who was not a spy that she could talk to, however yeah. briefly. Um, and, and they got rid of all the stupid will they, won't they, uh, you know, longing from afar bullshit, basically. And let, let these people be friends and be characters. Yeah. Uh, and then they blew everything up with this amazing cliffhanger at the end of season two and didn't have a solution to it. For when I was watching season three live, uh, the episode where Will comes back, all of a sudden the show made sense again, and it was fun. And here was, you know, they took a character, they took our main character, had her be dead for two years, had all of her social circle die, and then uh, then plucked her back in, and she didn't have a single person she could talk to or relate with. She didn't have anybody who knew her or that she could trust. And so it, I mean, it makes sense that the show felt completely unmoored because the character yeah. was. Yeah. And the episode where he's in it that season, yeah, you said it was one of the most fun episodes and it's it kind of felt very light in a season that felt very heavy. Even though it's an episode that's also dealing with some really heavy stuff because obviously, like, fake Francie comes back and he's dealing with, like, maybe killing her, which he does. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like, so yeah, and then... Oh, am I allowed to say spoilers? Yeah. Uh, I feel well, like yeah, we're knee-deep cool. in yeah, okay. spoilers. I, I, say, I figure, yeah. Um, like, the fact they sleep together, and then it's kind of not really that big a deal. And they're kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, we did that. And it kind of doesn't get mentioned that much ever again. I mean, obviously, he's only in one more episode after that in the final season. But I don't know. It's just, it doesn't seem like that huge a thing. And I kind of like that. Do, do you have any thoughts on Will? Will and Francie, Will and the Francinator, uh, which is the the name for evil Francie, by the way, Simon. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I I didn't really like Will and Francie as a couple. I mean, I know they got together just before she became the double, um, but that always seems to be like more of a convenience point, so that like the double would be with Will. Um, but yeah, I, I always liked Will, even when he was being the meddling journalist. And it's my favorite Bradley Cooper performance, like everything after I've kind of been a bit like, meh, about. Except Rocket, Raccoon. That was fun. <laughs> so you're you're clearly not a Bradley Cooper fan, Simon. Uh, was... I, I actually, no, no, it's not that. Bradley Cooper is just one of those guys like Ryan Reynolds, like a few others who had the unfortunate distinction of being shoved into superstardom when it didn't fit them. And is way better off doing character roles or something a little bit off. Like, I never didn't see Guardians of the Galaxy, but apparently Rocket Raccoon was a good fit for him. Good for him. But he just struck me as one of those guys. Hayden Christensen is another great example. Guys that should not have been tried as, you know, it guys or sexiest men alive. What the hell was that, Time Magazine? <laughs> anyway, um, you know, I, I, I don't dislike him, but. I mean, to me, the the again, the only moment in those episodes that I watched that had any kind of spontaneity to it that had something other than ticking from one twist to another until you just want to hang yourself is uh, in one of those last episodes of, I think, season one, when uh, when Bradley Cooper turns the table on his captor. Yeah, it's the season one finale. And, uh, you know, one in five, one in five great moment but it one of the only moments that feels like it's got actual like it has actual human inspiration behind it rather than just how can we do another twist this episode or how can we get to another cliffhanger and i don't know i just i just found the storytelling style wearying interesting yeah i think so much of this show comes down to if you invest in sydney 
And if you invest in Jennifer Garner's performance, uh, for me, I love spending time with that character and the performance really works. It's very much in the Felicity model of uh, uh, <laughs> the sad sad uh girl guitar music at the end of every episode while well, yes. we have a candlelit bath and <laughs> which sorry can i just complain about one thing jj commits a cardinal sin by deploying uh, a song we just talked about a couple weeks ago uh this woman's work by kate bush in the second episode come on <laughs> you hold out for a finale for that shit but isn't that when she's re-recording the voice message her and danny just yes. her. So See, you take, I yes. still remember that all these right. years later. I didn't rewatch that episode for this, and yet I still remember that cue. So clearly it was successful. Well, you're using this woman's work for an episode which is, you know, for a sequence which is specifically about, I miss my dead fiance, which doesn't feel right to me. But anyway, can I also add one more potential bit of controversy? Go for it. Um, as I understand it, Jenna Fisher was a close second for this role. Okay. Uh, would have way preferred that. Oh, yeah, no, not me. I, I think that would have been her, fascinating. I think it would be fascinating. I can't imagine her doing the fight stuff like at all. Yeah, well, I mean, I, obviously there would have been a there would have been a training regiment. Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether she would have. Obviously, I've not seen her in that kind of a role, so maybe she could pull it off. I cannot imagine her pulling off the physicality that goes with because because you know. Sydney is a tiny, tiny person, and so is Jennifer Garner. There's like nothing to her. She's tall and everything, and she's ripped. But you know, I, I really enjoy in season one the box two-parter when Quentin Tarantino just just punches her in the face. It's like you <laughs> kickboxer types, you always love to kick. Yay! After after a while, you're only like you're 110 pounds. I don't care how strong you are for 110 pounds. I'm still gonna just punch you in the face and win, and. Uh, so it's already a somewhat of a suspension of disbelief, but the physicality of her performance, like I bought the stunts in a way that probably I shouldn't have been able to with uh, Jennifer Garner. I don't know if I would have been able. Well, it's because we've never that. seen buff Jenna Fisher. That's true. That's true. But uh, let's, uh, let's take this opportunity. Then I guess to, to dive in with the, the fight sequences. Um, one of the all time great fights on TV as far as I'm concerned is Sydney and the Francinator at the end of season uh, season two where I think they actually they might actually use the kitchen sink to beat the crap out of each other in yeah. that kitchen fight um, but I also want to throw some love to Gina Torres and Anna Espinosa yeah they the ladies on this show definitely kick some ass um, not that the dudes that aren't but I think the women far outstripped the guys and the fun like fight sequences and obviously uh, Irina Derevko throwing Lena Olin as well like all of these women are so good and yes um, Jennifer Garner like we said just there's, there is something believable even though she is tiny and I think part of it is that she does the Jason Bourne thing of using her environment like in the pilot when she uses the uh, car antenna to like mm -hmm. flick the guy in the face like I always enjoy that kind of stuff when someone isn't as advantaged maybe in strength that they can use everything around them to to win. I'll also throw Isabella Rossellini and a pair of chopsticks in there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sir, this is a this is a violent family. Uh did any of did the did you, could you even enjoy that element of the show assignment or did your lack of connection with the characters and the storytelling structure did that take you out of it even for to enjoy the stunts? I don't think fight scenes have ever been my favorite part of anything other than maybe Banshee. 
and I don't know, I, I didn't find the filming style uh, on this show to be particularly inspired in terms of capturing the fights. Maybe the choreography was particularly good, but I mean, uh, fighting takes up about as much of the show as it did on Buffy, and that was it was the least interesting part of that show. So I don't know. It's 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 not your your fight scenes would have to be pretty spectacular to be the hook for a show for me, and that they're not good enough to sell me on this one. Fair enough. Uh, there are some really memorable fights for me in this, and, and I think a big part of that is also the score. I think that this is Michael Giacchino, and uh, though of course the theme song was written by J.J. Abrams. Uh, and uh, yeah, for me, this sort of like techno pounding score does a lot to to add to the energy of the show. I enjoyed enjoyed it, and I, I, there's a lot of action TV that I haven't seen. It's sort of a a weak spot for me in my uh, television lexicon. But I don't remember other shows at this time at the, when Alias was on, you know, early 2000s, using that kind of scoring. Um, so I feel like it is very much an element to Alias that is. It, you know, evocative or very uh, specific to that show. Uh, any thoughts on the scoring, Emma? Yeah, I mean, um, I was thinking about this today, in fact, when I was watching the episode, is that it's kind of James Bondy music. Obviously, that's kind of like one of the homages they're going for, like with the big band stuff, but with the techno stuff. So it brings it completely into the now. And it does just up the tempo. Like, it makes you feel kind of more energized, maybe when watching it. And I, I really like Michael Chikino. I Every score he does, I'm always really into and the fact it kind of the Incredibles I think he kind of took some of his alias kind of like signatures and put it in the Incredibles um but yeah I I thought it's really, I think it's really great yeah the uh the orchestral stuff feels like uh, a beta run to me of his better scores from later to be honest like it's not it's really not bad and it's certainly and it's distinctive but it doesn't have it doesn't ha- it's certainly not as memorable as his music for Lost I do. And yeah, that is certainly something, even at the time when I was watching it, I, I was very aware of the progression of Giacchino from Alias to Lost to, you know, everything he's done since. It did very much feel like, you know, we're, this is the sound for Alias. And then he he d- takes it to the next level and gets more inventive and um, and better, maybe, <laughs> with with Lost and then continues to has continued to grow, grow as a composer since. Um, but I do think I think it, it works uh, pretty well here, uh, and and again that that blending of the scoring with this a very big part of the music of Alias is that chick rock sound. <laughs> uh, so I mean, again, the, that's going to be something that some people will really identify with, and some people it, it I don't know that it dates the show specifically to the early two thousands, but it gives it. Um, because again, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with what music was popular at that time. I'm, I'm basically good with old dead German guys, uh, <laughs> classical music out there. Um, but it, it does feel very much, oh, that's Alias when yeah. you hear that kind of music. I think the Sarah McLachlan stuff feels very much of its time, and it's something that I definitely registered. Um, but he, they use Joni Mitchell's River in an episode, one of the Project Christmas ones, and it's mm-hmm. like one of my favorite uses of a Joni Mitchell song in anything. Like it was just really, really well done. Sarah McLachlan usage really just dates it for me to every other time I've heard Sarah McLachlan wanted to claw my own eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> Not the show's fault. <laughs> oh, good he likes like I mean Felicity uses Sarah McLaughlin a lot as well, so it definitely feels like I guess 
the thing he was into. Maybe that's why maybe quite a lot of people, I guess, were into Sarah McLaughlin in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's um, a J.J. Abrams thing, definitely. It's definitely a connection between those two shows. Um, but we're going to talk, uh, I want to dive in uh, for at least a few minutes with the uh, with the wardrobe and the costuming and makeup and all that, because, I mean, you can't have Emma Fraser on and not talk about costuming. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Before we get there, though, I do want to mention that uh, again, I'm guessing this is not the case for you, Simon, but for me, I loved all this, the, the stuff with Spy Daddy and Spy Mommy, so Victor Garber and Lena Olin. I think they had tremendous chemistry together, and the trio worked very well. Um, I enjoyed Mia Maestro when she showed up. I'm uh, not as convinced about that, and also less convinced with the Isabella Rossellini stuff, though she is a lot of fun on the show. She, They did a good job of adding to the family, I guess, but the family dynamic and how that ties in with everything really was the heart of the show for the first two seasons. And was, I thought, very successful. Um, also, got to throw some love to the team. Um, uh, Kevin uh, uh, Weissman, or Weissman as Marshall, just there's a big spot in my heart for Marshall. And uh, as, as well as um, Greg Rumberg, um, as, as Eric, and... Um, and Carl Lumbly as uh, as her partner. Uh, th- this this is a very likable team um, of of protagonists that we have, and uh, they did. I guess they were kind of bland for you, uh, Simon, but for me, they <laughs> they were very uh, likable, and they 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 worked well together. Well, actually, I would posit the, the the Kevin Weissman character Marshall is such a bad facsimile of a Joss Whedon character that like I was I actually found him kind of offensive the way that. Every time he presents a gadget, he presents it the exact same way, using the exact same ticks, presenting a speech in the same exact nervous way. And he just, I mean, maybe he, they gave him some variance later on, but he's just playing that one note, not the actor's fault, it's how he's written, playing that one note every single time, over and over. And it's not witty. It's just annoying. <laughs> I, 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 I like Marshall. Um, but yeah, I guess I can see that, but they definitely do develop him a little more and, especially when he uh, gets together with the lovely Amanda Foreman. He played Megan in Felicity, who I'm kind of in love with at the moment. Thanks for that show. Uh, anyway, uh, tangent. Um, but yeah, for me, um, the relationship in the family was definitely, uh, like you said, the heart of the show, uh, particularly Sydney and Spy Daddy. Like Victor Garber and Jennifer Garner have such good chemistry together. Even when she thinks he's done all these terrible things and she's hating on him, there's, I don't know. I, I think there's just a strength to those two that was my favorite thing about the show, definitely. And then before we, we move off of characters, Ron Rifkin as Sloan. Uh, I also really enjoyed David Anders as Sark, though I think that's yes. a law of diminishing returns over the course of the series. <laughs> yeah. um, as they run out of new things for him to do. But but Sloan is such, I mean, it's ridiculous. That he get, how like he when he is in charge of APO, that is just the show looking at the camera and saying, "Isn't Sloan a fun character?" <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but you know whatever. Uh, again, not being willing to change things or have any permanent loss of of significant characters, but in those first two seasons, I think he works very well. Yeah, I'd agree with that, especially like kind of the fact how much he kind of loves Sydney and how much she hates him, and that kind of like combative kind of like dynamic between the two of them uh i was very much a fan of them and like him and jack as well their history together i i think they did a very good job of building the history of everyone um uh, even if some stuff was probably retconned um they did a, a 
good job of like it felt like they'd known each other for a very very long time and they didn't feel the need to do like awkward flashbacks where they recast the actors no. or anything you know like th there's so many ways that could have been so bad and i'm glad that they didn't do that um yeah there's also a nice i think effective nice is the wrong word there's an effective like creeper vibe <laughs> with uh sloan and sydney that i really appreciate because you know for him it's like oh it's like you're my daughter <laughs> for her you destroyed my fucking life <laughs> but i can't just kill you like i want to you know like i think they did a good job playing with that that tension and those two performers really making that work any any thoughts simon or shall we move directly on <laughs> uh i'll just if i can lob one more complaint in there the characters uh, such as sloan and others at least in those first two seasons are constantly talking about how uh they believe in a higher purpose and they love or and or they love their country this this show has absolutely nothing on its mind in terms of how people, how, how spies work, how they deal with combating loyalties. It has, it's way more interested in mommy and daddy issues from, you know, obviously spy daddy to spy mommy to my spy mommy killed your spy daddy to uh, like, really, really JJ? Is that the best you can do? Come on. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> why why do you keep whoop, whoop, whooping i'm because that's all me this in. that's me turning myself off early okay you realize that the listeners don't know that well now they do <laughs> okay okay um yeah that's the sound you normally that we make if we're gonna cut something but this is all staying in um oh, cool. any other thoughts emma on on characters or shall we dive in with pretty costumes be pretty i think we should dive into pretty costumes okay th thoughts top five most oh, okay. memorable. Um, Pilot, the red hair, and just black. Like, that's iconic to me for the show. Like, the run, Lola run look. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, my favorite is from Ron Davey, which you mentioned earlier, the cabaret singer with the pink wig. I was um, there for Halloween one year. <gasps> no way. You it was fun. Those pictures. I couldn't get a good, I couldn't get the right kind of wig. It was, it was, uh... it was devastating. I didn't know how to do the cosplay, like diet, bleach it diet thing. So I just, I did the best. It's like bright pink, but That's it was amazing. fun. It was fun. Yeah. Um, all my favorites actually tend to be the brighter wig ones. So kind of like the more like gothy punk, there's a purple wig one that was kind mm -hmm. of like a, a gothy one. Um, kind of when they went to any of like the bondage clubs, just because it was always a very funny TV representation of a bondage club. <laughs> like a, well, a network TV bondage club as well. In fact, all the clubs they went to, it was like, no nightclub looks like this, but mm -hmm. okay, um, TV wise. Um and oh number five i'm just trying to think of another one um yeah basically any of like the club ones or my but yeah the cabaret one is my ultimate definitely um have, have you got any favorites well you know what i really like about that cabaret one is that she's in pants and so when she's doing yes. ridiculous stunts it makes sense um yeah. One of the costumes that comes to mind for me, uh, or costume character kind of moments for me, one of the early things I really liked about the show was, I think it's in season one, when she's in, like, Spain for a car thing. She's wearing that orangey-reddish kind of dress. Yes. Uh, looks ridiculously great. She has to go chase down Anna Espinosa. She's got a, a high uh, slit on the on her leg, so it makes sense that she can move her feet. But she chucks off her heels yeah. immediately and just sprints. And <laughs> I'm like, yes, we don't have the character hobbling along in heels because that's not who Sydney is. I really enjoyed that. I mean, and I'd have to rewatch a lot more of it 
to see how consistent this was over the series. But it seems like a, seems like a lot of the times they had her in footwear that at least kind of made sense. It would be like a boot with a yeah. heel that could su- actually support her weight if she's going to be running. Um, or, uh, or, or she would chuck off the heels or, you know, or not have to run. You know, I, I was very aware of, you know, cer- certain moments like that early on in the series that really helped me get over the ridiculousness of all the stuff that she was wearing. Yeah, because the, the cabaret one, she's definitely wearing flat shoes, um, like which is like something that I was also very happy with because they could easily just stick her in stilettos. Stupid... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even when like they, I mean, the Super Bowl episode springs to mind. So obviously, opening with her in two sets of lingerie is obviously an easy way to get people to continue watching television. But then they have her like kicking the guy's ass and then putting on like pants and a top straight away like there's no like kind of lingering in the lingerie like yeah. she's she's out of it as quickly as she can so. yeah so it's it there's a bit of having your cake and eating it too there but it, i'm so it, glad you said that because i was gonna oh yeah certainly well that was that was that was we should talk a little bit about that episode really because that was the show's attempt to get viewers and really up their numbers they're like we got the post super bowl slot this is going to be great and I think it's a really very strong episode, but the trouble is that the Super Bowl went long that year, as I recall, and everybody went to sleep <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> so they blew up their show. They did this super accessible show. They have an episode begin with her in this ridiculous lingerie because then they could do that in all their ads and stuff and try to get the guys in to watch the show. They had women watching the show because of all the emotional element and, you know, all the weepy sad girl guitar music and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. They were they were trying to get a more male audience to tune in. So there's lots of awesome stunts and action and stuff in that sequence, as well as Jennifer Garner and lingerie. Uh, but it didn't really end up helping their ratings that much. And then they had to rewrite the show. I thought they did a pretty good job with their immediate recovery um, that led to some of the season three mess though. Uh, what did you think? Simon, did you watch that episode? And if so, what did you think about it? I did. I mean, I think you're overstating the degree to which I mean, I mean, maybe if they'd followed through with it, it would have been show blowing up, but the way they actually handled it didn't feel like it was, I mean, it felt like it should have been, but then the follow-up didn't really bear that out am i making sense yeah they, they they have all of a sudden this what they set up to be a series-long plot to take down sd6 changes overnight and that's not what the show is anymore but they don't commit to sending you know marshall and like all those main characters to jail like they really would and introducing a whole new cast and so they don't go to an extreme like they could have with that but for a lot of people, the show was Sydney as a like a triple agent, and so when you remove an element of that, it simplifies it, it makes it more straightforward. Um, you lose some of the fun espionage stuff, but that could only last so long, anyways. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I don't think it qualifies as blowing up the show to like a let's say good wife level of blowing up the show the way it's done multiple times. It was like half a hail mary. I feel like I I feel like you know that sort of the fact that it's the show's equivalent to blowing up the show, like epitomizes how sort of half-assed I find the whole thing to be. <laughs> Emma, do you have any thoughts on phase one? Uh, I love it. I, I think it does blow the show up, but then I guess maybe I'm coming from a, a place of loving the show. Um, but yeah, to me, like, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, like, Don't apologize. <laughs> I'm just being very British. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, I just think, the whole, I mean, and at the end of the episode, the fact that you have, like, 
Francie dead and like they, they add that extra plot into it like they could have just ended it on the kiss like Vaughn and Sydney finally going together SD6 being like destroyed but then they go one step further and add this extra kind of oh yeah by the way your best friend's dead but you're not gonna know it because she looks like your best friend um so oh, I oh but Francie doesn't like coffee ice cream exactly <laughs> my favorite line from the whole show yes I um... it, uh, so good. And how do you bring in Rutger Hauer for only one episode? Come on. Yeah, that's true. That's offensive does... to me. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with that. Do we have? That's a way to talk quickly. Any guest stars we want to mention? I've already mentioned Quentin Tarantino. I love his appearance on this. I think it's really great. I know some people hate it. It's very Tarantino-y. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm David Cronenberg uh, is going to be like the other one, the kind of crazy drug guy. I thought he was really good in that kind of weird role in season three um he was one of my favorites did anyone stand out to you simon um not particularly other than rutger Hauer, obviously because he's one of the best humans alive uh tarantino doesn't act he just mugs and he i mean it's what he's hired to do he mugs and mugs and mugs for two whole episodes and it's what they wanted he did his job i can't complain about that uh so i won't what about the any any love for the dentist? Uh, oh yeah, I mean he was reasonably creepy. I mean honestly, the ballsiest thing I think the show ever like did really was commit to the whole teeth pulling thing in the pilot. Mm. Uh, that I wasn't expect. That was one of the only things it ever did that I thought was kind of unexpected. I like that they brought him back, but only brought him back like once or twice. And he was super cre- creepy every time they did as well. Very I- creepy. Yeah. Well, do we have any other elements we want to get into? We, we we just touched very superficially on the costumes um, and the, the wigs. I just love the creativity of them. I can't imagine working in that costume or wig department and going, crap, what haven't we done yet in season three or four? Um, but the versatility of it and also just the makeup, the way – and they talk about this in some of the special features, the way they take Jennifer Garner and make her face work with every color hair – Every color outfit, uh, like just ridiculous, like every different kind of cut and everything. It's like that doesn't just happen. That's very specific shading of foundations and everything else, too. So the way the the creativity and uh, execution of all those different looks, I, I don't think it's superficial to enjoy that element of the show. It takes a lot of craft to make that happen. Oh, yeah, it's easily one of my favorite parts and it's kind of like the one similarity i guess to the americans even though the americans obviously is a very different show um and deals with very different kind of disguises and these are kind of the more extreme end um but with alias i just i like you i was always amazed at how many different kind of characters they came up with for sydney and the fact that jennifer garner could sell it every time like she can do sweet she can play dumb she can do the kind of sciencey kind of thing and then she can i guess do dominatrix like she kind of could play every single side and it it makes me sad that she's not doing that much at the moment i know she's got like a couple of movies out but i kind of want more for her like maybe a tv show another one would be good I like that now TV shows are more than movies. <laughs> yeah, well, especially the movies she's doing. Not that, like, I'm sure she's, like, probably enjoying whatever she's doing. It's up to her. But for me, I want her to be on something really great. And I don't think she's necessarily doing that. Well, I don't think she's gotten the opportunity, at least what I've seen her in since she hasn't gotten a character like Sid. 
like Sydney, even though I know Simon, you don't think it's a very interesting character. Uh, for me, it is. And I really enjoy her performance. I think she shows a trim. I think she, she makes that pilot work. She makes the entire series work. And most actresses would not be able to handle all these different elements in one. There are very few performances as physical and as emotional as with such range and the like, fact that she puts it all together the moment in the pilot where she finds danny's body and that sound that she admits when she's like the kind of like silent scream that turns into the high pitch like I, that's kind of claire dane's level of kind of like cry face for me like, i don't know <laughs> I, I i i'm very into crumple uh like face and quiver chins and for me that's kind of like one of the the highs of that kind of category of acting yeah. Yeah, this will be the last thing I say because we've gone long, but I, I don't want to just, I don't want to make it sound like I think Jennifer Garner is bad in the role. I think obviously the, the physical aspect is uh, really, really, really impressive. I mean, that is, that is some badass cardio right there. Uh, and you know, that, that's a lot of work and you know, it's, it's certainly an impressive performance, technically speaking. I just find it funny, you know, Ari, the Jenna, the Jenna Fisher thing, our, our opinions of actors are so constructed based on the work they've done not necessarily the work they could have done. And uh, that's just, that's something I think about a lot because I think there's very few bad actors. I just, I, I just wonder as a thought experiment, what, uh, what the alternative choice would have done to the show. It probably would have been a very different show. I'm sure played to, cause you, that's one of the things you watch shows grow as they discover the, the, the strengths of their actors, of their cast. And what can we do with these characters to best, play to this actor's strengths and uh, i'm sure it would have been a very different show it probably would have still been an interesting show and hopefully it would have been a good show um but yeah I, and i think that's an excellent point simon it, and it's not even just it's the work they've done the work they've had the opportunity to do the work that they someone has allowed them to do mm-hmm. is how we know these actors um that's an excellent point uh, any final thoughts emma um, no, just other than the fact that the Rambaldi stuff got ridiculous and that kind of made the second half of the show kind of get extremely convoluted and not hard to follow. Hard to follow is probably wrong, but when they threw up new things like all the different covenants and passenger mm-hmm. and all that stuff, like, I don't know, it was, it was disappointing how it turned out, but I guess when they threw up so many things early on, it wasn't that surprising that it ended up the way it did yeah that makes sense i feel like this is a show that could have benefited from a uh spartacus sized uh show run yes Uh, you know or uh as much as i do really like this show i'm not saying i think it should have been canceled after season two or anything but i do i do tell people uh if they're the kind of a person who's gonna get really angry or upset at the show for becoming something different or or be um when it has a significant drop down, I tell people watch the first two seasons of the show and then don't watch the last minute <laughs> or <laughs> of season two, because if you watch that cliffhanger, you're going to need to watch the next episode. If you're like yeah. me, um, and those cliffhangers are tremendous and hugely effective. When we get to the, my name's not Michael Vaughn. Oh, but it really, it is. And I'm <laughs> like, that was horrible. I remember still watching that moment and going, holy shit, they're going to change everything. And they changed yeah. nothing. Um, and maybe that ties in Simon, with what you've been saying, but their unwillingness to commit to And then change. him getting killed, but obviously not really getting killed, even though he got yeah. shot like a billion times. Um, yeah. And then it's like, oh, he's living in a mountain somewhere. Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, he's Osama Bin Laden. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, these are two, at, at the very least, this, these are two um, uh, very strong to excellent uh, seasons of television, followed by the mess that can still be fun sometimes, and then a sh- shadow of its former glory that I still enjoyed watching, uh, which are seasons four and five. Um, I do think it's worth watching the show. is if I think if you don't like the pilot, if you don't connect to the pilot, I don't think you're going to like the show. Is that yep. safe to say, Simon? Yep. Yeah. Emma? <laughs> I would agree with that. So, so watch the pilot. I think it's a tremendous pilot. Um, and see, if it's if you like the pilot, you'll probably like the show. So you should watch more. Uh, and I look forward to hearing what people think about the show and the various elements to it. But um, but we've already gone mega long. So I'm going to stop us there and say, Emma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, mostly at TV Ate My Wardrobe. And I'm also on Twitter at Frasbelina. So... Come find me there. Well, again, thank you, Emma. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. So your review of, of this is up? Is, is on the website. I try to get it up every Sunday night. Sometimes I can't. Sometimes it's Monday morning. But uh, th- this time it was late Sunday night. Um, I beat the AV club. Suck it, bitches. <laughs> Maybe don't put that in. Or do. I don't care. It's your podcast. Anyway. <laughs> it's also your podcast. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you see, you read it or don't. And uh, we'll be we'll be back next week to talk about the... Oppo Research, which I'm very much excited for.